Hello and welcome to another episode, the first episode of 2022 of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin, here with my co-host and the man who gets stuff done, Teos Avadia. <laughs> hey, Teos. What's up, my man? I, um, I have been resurrected just like Neo in the Matrix. I mean, yeah. this is a new year. I have emerged. I have more glowy green bits than ever before. I'm glad. I'm glad. I, <laughs> my eyes are burning, actually, from the glowy green bits. Uh, that, I'm, I'm recording in bullet time. Yes, and I am dodging. Really slowly. Uh, and it's not because I'm in any special time. That's just how I move. Yeah. Uh, just really slowly. Uh, but what's not slow in coming is the news. The news no. continues. And so we uh, covered the news of last year, last episode. So now we're going to get into uh, what's happening in 2022. But some of it will still be looking back into what's happened in the past, including this first news bit, which as, you know, industry professionals, I would say that we're always keen on uh, watching. And so this bit of news came via Twitter um, as the D&D staff would, was speaking up to basically crush some misinformation on the Pathfinder versus 4E sales numbers. Uh, so as as 4E wound down and Pathfinder spun up, we were getting news that Pathfinder was passing 4E in terms of sales. And that news was basically coming from game stores. Um, it wasn't covering other bits of, of sales uh, venues, avenues. Um, so that was sort of misrepresented in that sense. Not to say that it didn't happen, but it it you know it wasn't being fully reported on, and so as more rumors like this kept kept coming around, uh, you know even up until now, um, some people that have worked at Wizards of the Coast and Paizo uh, have have spoken out to clarify clarify uh, some of these myths. Do you want to give the details here? Yeah, and I mean this is pretty much. I can't think of a sort of parallel to this story where, you know, Chris Sims started this by, by speaking up on Twitter and saying, you know, it's time to kill a myth. 4E did well financially. It didn't do as well as Wizards of Hasbro hoped to, but I assure you it, sold, it outsold Pathfinder by a large factor. Right. And that's the myth he's really trying to kill, right? That, that this idea that Pathfinder overtook D&D in sales is a a well-discussed piece, right? And it all comes from ICV2 reporting based on the data they gathered from particular gaming stories. And, and I, you know, you and I, some other people have heard from staff kind of just quietly off the record, sort of like, yeah, D&D sold better. It's just not worth arguing. Um, and Chris, who has worked at, at both Paizo and Wizards of the Coast, I guess just felt like, you know, it's just time for this myth to die. Mm -hmm. um, Wizards never had the reason to speak up for this, but but it's just, it's a bad thing to have out there, this idea that Paizo outsold or that Pathfinder outsold D&D. Uh, &D. Mm -hmm. and, and then what we saw was corroboration by a bunch of other people, including um, Owen Casey Stevens, who worked at Wizards of the Coast and has been working at Paizo for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, he, too, says that D&D 4E outsold Pathfinder, uh, does nothing to diminish Pathfinder's spectacular success. 
And Trevor Kidd, Greg Bilsland, who worked at D&D during the 4E era, also talked about it. And then Matthew Lee, who worked there. And he brought up how uh, products like Dreamblade and Hecatomb were actually much more problematic than 4E ever was in eating up a large budget and producing very little return, whereas 4E actually did quite well as a line. It just may not have hit the numbers that Hasbro dreamed of. Right. It's just it's that sort of scaling that we've talked about that yeah. Wizards is is on its own scale. So 4E could sell very, 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 very well and still not be the success that they wanted or needed it to be yeah. to meet those internal company goals. Yeah. Um, so it, it was it was just an interesting way uh, to hear about it from people that were inside both Paizo and Wizards yeah. at the time. So, you know, that was a, a very uh, interesting Twitter thread. Uh, Getting on to more current things, uh, MCDM's Arcadia magazine number 11 is now out. It has done very well in its first year, experimenting and creating a 5e magazine that we haven't really seen since, well, there, there have been a few attempts, but uh, yeah, you know, this is, this is well-supported, well-run, and giving some uh, incredible content. And what I think context? that's maybe, you know, okay. worth looking at that just like magazines when they've tried to start up, like there was a sort of, I don't know, one of the Gygaxes was, was started it up mm -hmm. for a couple of years to try to sort of do a new version of, of Dragon Magazine. And, and that, you know, lasted a few issues. And, and there've been a couple of other times that just have not gone very far. And this has gone far, right? It has mm -hmm. a lot of subscribers, a lot of energy. And you just look at the material and it's inspiring material. And that's, that's impressive. Yep. So what material are we looking at for issue 11? Uh, we have Angelic Ancestries by Sadie Lowry. Uh, four new angelic player ancestries that reflect how your PC uh, is a scion descending from celestials. And it's neat. I like I like the t the take here. It's different than say how 4E had you play sort of divine creatures. It's different than the way it feels in 5E with existing ancestries. It's it's really nicely done. There's some great ideas behind each of these ancestries. Um, then Justice Ramin Arman writes: Good fences make good neighbors. Three unique fences for your game, and here he means the fences that fence stolen goods. Right. Right. <laughs> There's a play on words there, fences make good neighbors. Um, and so these are NPCs where you would take your more risky treasure and try to sell it. And there's some fun rules like heat, the risk level associated with stolen, illegal, or coveted goods, um, rules for selling to a fence, and then three very cool NPCs that can function as fences in your campaigns. Nice. Uh, and then we end with just Rudy Basso knocking it out of the park with, I cut off its snout. <laughs> I mean, what an article name. Rules for preparing and consuming wild beasts. And wild with an E on the end. Yeah. Um, and this is all about how you can harvest various crazy parts of monsters and cook them and make things. And, I mean, we've got Chul Boil, mm -hmm. Hydra Five Ways, Seared Shambling Mound Salad, Mimic Tongue Chowder. I mean, and they all have various things, right? And, 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 and there's skill checks too. So when you're cooking it, how well did you do? So if you make that mimic tongue chowder really well, you can polymorph into another creature and so on. Just great, great stuff. And all with wonderful art and layout. Another excellent issue. Nice. Uh, going from the magazine to a full month, we have new Game Master Month from Monty Cook Games. 
So what Monty Games has done for the past few years is one month during the year, bring together various games and then help new GMs learn how to run them. Uh, so this year, they, they're doing their own game, Numenera, um, Unknown Armies, Trail of Cthulhu, RuneQuest, Monster of the Week, and Delta Green. And Roll20 is getting in on the action uh, and supporting this endeavor. You can find uh, new posts uh, added every Tuesday and Thursday, providing the next step in your journey. And all this is at newgamemastermonth.com with a link in the show notes. Sweet. Yep. Uh, we get a new article from DM David on the history of dungeons, where David Hartledge looks at where the concept of a sprawling dungeon came from. Uh, what is What does David have to say on this? This is a really fun read. I highly recommend this. Um, he looks at the idea of a dungeon. If you think about it, like, you know, there are no such dungeons in history, right? A dungeon is just a bunch of cells. Uh, if you go to if you go on a dungeon tour in some medieval city, it's kind of disappointing. It's like okay, you know, square room yeah. has a couple cells in it. Maybe you get an Iron Maiden if you're lucky. Yeah, that's it, yeah. right? But this idea of a labyrinth and maze, whatever, where does that come from, and and why did it sort of explode in D and D and become such a huge part of the game? And so he talks about the history of that. Uh, where Dave Arneson is watching movies, sitting with you know bowls of popcorn, just devouring it while watching all these things and reading books. And Dave, in various interviews, talks about this, but doesn't really state which ones. And of course, we're able to sleuth it out these days to look like, well, he said it was this particular you know creature features. So here's yeah. this website that actually tells you what showed and where Dave was at this time. And so he breaks it all down and finds like what are the Conan books he read and, and all these different influences. And it's really neat to go through this and see where just the concept of a dungeon can come from. So I, I highly recommend this. Yeah, I wonder if the, the dungeons in the movies or books he read uh, have bathrooms. <laughs> that's, that's I mean, a question. Yeah, Conan's got to go somewhere. It's true. It's true. Well, he goes wherever he wants to, but <laughs> that's, uh, true. that's a whole different story. Uh, we get a year in review column from Shannon Applecline at rpg.net where he has a regular column um there's a link in the show notes but it's very similar to much of what we covered in our last episode of sort of what happened in role-playing games this year uh his talks about other games a little bit more um rather than focusing solely on dnd like we did yeah. uh, but you know he has links to various articles there's you know who passed away this year in the gaming community and what they did links to some of the controversies and you know it's a good uh mm -hmm. good overview if you want to check out where we were in 2021 i always like shannon's writings and really yep. good historical views yep. yep he uh he of the designers and dragons uh book series we have a new sir in the gaming industry <laughs> sir ian livingston uh ian livingston was knighted he is the co-founder of games workshop at one time was the exclusive distributor of D&D in Europe, and they also published the influential magazine White Dwarf. And you may know Ian from the Fighting Fantasy books, um, which are the choose-your-own-adventure-styled books that also used dice to play the game and, and choose your story. And he was knighted due to his service in the online gaming industry. Sean, you know, I didn't know that the Queen was a fan of uh, online gaming. 
Yeah. Uh, I thought she was more of a tabletop player, well, you know? Yeah, I, I think she's probably a power gamer, if, oh, to be honest. I can see that. Yeah, because, you know, if yeah. she wants something to happen, it's going to happen. Yeah, I don't think she role plays either. I think she just crushes. Right, just like, you rolled a what? <laughs> oh, we are not amused. <laughs> exactly. And we get now some free hero quest scenario scenarios and new scenarios uh i got the hero quest game for christmas nice have not had a chance to play yeah see i just bought it to play your particular <laughs> scenario because i didn't back it when it was on pulse and uh-huh. i still can't get your scenario no you can't yet which but is, maybe is, yeah i'm i'm waiting i'm not gonna crack that box open until i can play your scenario specifically well well, you do get a really cool scenario by Doug Hopkins, um, who some of us may have you know know from old winter fantasy conventions. Doug's a really great gamer, and, and he headed up this Hero Quest project. Um, so he creates a free one-page Hero Quest scenario that's made, meant to bridge the play between the core set that you can buy physically and the Keller's Keep uh, Keller's Keep quest pack. Um, and Keller's Keep and Return of the Witch Lord, which are two old scenarios that have been remade and were part of that crowdfunding that mm-hmm. took place, they are now on the store. So it okay. brings up the question, will we also see the brand new ones that uh, myself and several others helped create? Um, we'll see. I, I have no idea. So I'm, I'm, I'm as interested as anyone else in seeing where that shows up. I'm hopeful. Um, the other thing is that that companion app that's available, it's really cool. Mm-hmm. There's this, you know, on your iPhone or Android, you can load up this free app, which will help you run the game. And it makes it nice and smooth to do that. Um, that now supports Keller's Keep and Return of the Witch Lord. So Sweet. I'm very curious to see what else is coming from HeroQuest. I'm excited to see it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the app. Uh, so we can all play and no one has to uh, DM, basically. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And... That is the news for this week. So we will now move on to our main topic, which is after a short break for our year in review, Fizzbands Part 7. Today we're going to talk about layers and hordes. Mm-hmm. The chapter begins. Dragons are deeply connected to the world in which they dwell. The magic of the material plane flows through them. It empowers their breath weapons and their tremendous might. It pools in their layers and tangles in the treasures of their hordes. This chapter, intended for the Dungeon Master, explores the connection between dragons and the world they inhabit and how that connection manifests in each dragon's layer and horde. So we're going to get some tips and some world building and some connections between dragons, layers, and hordes in this chapter. So let's let's start like they start talking about layers. Uh, I'm going to go back and and say, you know, playing a D and D first edition D and D, these dragon fights and the treasure you get from them were like the pinnacle of the game. Yeah, for not, sure. not not only because the fights were so difficult and challenging, but you got that sweet sweet loot, uh, right? Because in the stat blocks for the dragons in the old monster manual, they didn't, they gave you like the treasure type and it had a letter. And then you went to the, the dungeon master's guy. You're like, okay, what letter is, okay, that's this. And then you rolled across the chart. And for those, those hordes, for those combined hordes, 
you got some loot uh, like you would not believe. And then you start rolling random magic items and who knows what could happen. Uh, yeah, it was, it was lovely. It, it was, it was more enticing a system as a sort of player than uh, the 5e system, right? So the 5e system is based on CR, roll on this table. So right. when you base it on monster, then the monster can sort of exceed the rules as written, kind right. of, if you will. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what that was. And even as a player, you couldn't help but look through, you know, a monster manual and go, wait, wait, which treasure table does this give? Oh. Yeah. D Dragons essentially had their own, like, two or three lines uh, on that treasure table for their hordes. So, you know, it was... It was so, you know, as a kid, as a teenager or even younger, you know, that whole power gaming, oh, we're going to, what magic are we yeah. getting? All that stuff yeah. was so, it captured the the imagination, but also the sort of greedy player factor. Um, and they so tried well. to do that here, which is cool to see. Yeah. Um, while also telling us more of this whole multiverse concept yeah. and telling us more of this horde thing matters yeah. and it's interesting as i've read this book right i like you know it starts me with this multiverse concept and then and then it i, I keep waiting for like well tell me what a green dragon's lair looks like mm -hmm. and i thought maybe that was going to be in encounters nope i thought it would be in layers and hordes nope it's going to be in the draconomicon section which was next time but right. but it, it it's it keeps doing sort of other things and iterating in interesting ways and I, i'm curious yeah. sort of how we'll eventually look back on on the architecture of this book compared to previous draconomicons it's yeah i was going to say the same thing the first thing i was going to say was you know back when i was playing that those ad and d games what i failed to realize was that the excitement that was being caused by the, these dragon battles really weren't good for the campaign or the game as a whole they tended to overpower the characters they tended to be the fights were very swingy sometimes you would you could defeat the dragon too easily or just be totally overwhelmed. Um, but without knowing more about game design, this was just like the raw experience jammed straight into the veins. Uh, For sure. And, and so as I was reading that, you know, this chapter, I was sort of thinking back on those times where mm -hmm. the fun of the game wasn't necessarily supporting the long-term health of the campaign or the game. And, and how that plays out here. Uh, yeah, AD&D &D was uh, tricky in the, the way that, say, spellcasting worked for monsters or things like that. And, and it, it, you're right. It could be just such an easy fight or it could be brutal and unwinnable and, 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 and very hard to predict. Uh, I always think of third edition as the edition that really gave dragons teeth. Mm -hmm. And I had many battles in that edition that were just complete nail biters because the dragons were so powerful and they hurt you in so many ways, right? right? The whole wing buffet, wing buffet, mm -hmm. tail slap, right? All that kind of thing. And claw, claw, bite, wing buffet, wing buffet, yeah. tail slap. And, and then they would do things like fly and be out of reach or, and just, and recharge their breath weapon and hit you again. And it was, it was something to take on a third edition dragon, let alone when the Draconomicon came out and that yeah. book just supercharged dragons. True. Yeah, true. So, you know, now that we've had those lessons over the editions, we'll see where fifth edition lands us here in terms of dragon layers. Uh, so we're given lore 
that a dragon's horde is more than just where it sleeps. It's a nexus for the energy of the dragon that resonates across the dimensions in tandem with the hordes that also resonate across the uh, the dimensions. Every so. dragon is Doctor Strange with an infinity stone. Got it. Per, per, well, yeah. Infinity stones that are connected, uh, in, as we'll find out later. Uh-huh. So we get a table that gives examples of wondrous locations for a dragon's lair. And, you know, it's, again, it's a table. It's fine. You can pull from it. Although I would have loved to see, like, a table for each color dragon uh, rather than, you know, a yeah. overall, right? It Dragons are so different de- depending on the, the color, the type, that just using one table for a layer for all those different kinds of dragons seems sort of counterintuitive. But yeah, and this idea that dragons, even unconsciously at a young age, are going to seek out a site of magical resonance, right? It's, it's sort of an interesting thing. And so then the location should reflect that in some way, like it's a vast crater where a long buried meteorite resides. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. How, how does that work? You know, in but in for a white dragon as opposed to a red dragon, I, I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, it's it's there. It's fun. You can use it as the DM to come up with something cool and interesting. Uh, then we get the regional effects. So the regional effects are already talked about in the master manual, obviously, uh, and this goes into a bit more detail about what those regional effects may look like. And, and I liked this section. I thought this section did a good job of, without being too specific, um, giving a DM some great ideas for ways to um, world build with a dragon connection. Agreed. And and they felt cinematic. Like I would read these things. Like there's one where they're talking about how um, you see in like reflections, like a, in a lake or a pool of water, you'll see a dragon swooping down from below, from above in the sky but it's not actually happening. It's like an illusion that happens. I'm like, oh, that's right out of a movie, right? Like I can imagine the scene playing out or that the clouds would look like the dragon peering down at you. And I'm like, oh, that's that's neat stuff that you could certainly add into a campaign where a dragon's gonna really be important. And it would feel epic by the time you get to the dragon eventually, because these things have been happening on the way there. Yeah. So like for terrain changes, uh, they talk about three things that, three specific things that might happen. And they, they talk about, you know, plants growing and becoming difficult terrain, sinkholes appearing, mazes of hedges or icy walls, but they give three specific uh, types of changes, exposing terrain. So the terrain within six miles of a layer actively works to foil stealth, giving creatures other than the dragon disadvantage on dexterity stealth checks. And I thought, okay, yeah, this is cool. Uh, Cause yeah, I could see, a green dragon, all the leaves in the forest around them die. So there's no like leafy concealment or the wind that blows the snow across the white dragons uh, terrain doesn't cover up tracks for some reason. Uh, And, you know, that's something that not only has a cool story uh, element, but it also has a game mechanical element that players are, are going to, if a, even if a player doesn't get into the storytelling side of things or the world care about the world building, they're going to care that as they're trying to sneak up on this layer, their stealth checks at disadvantage. It draws attention to that mechanic with the story. I love that. 
Yeah, it's neat stuff. And and even the idea that some of these work for good dragons, right? Like smooth roads. Right. The difficult terrain is not considered difficult near this particular place. Undergrowth will move out of your way. Slopes are not as steep as you thought they were, right? Just mm -hmm. rough ground levels out under your feet. Like that's an interesting idea that could be very cool for a, a good dragon. Yep. Then we also get weather changes, uh, which are, are sort of standard, right? Pleasant weather. If it's a probably a good dragon or if it's a dragon that wants good weather in their area, then they within six miles, it's always sunny and pleasant. The rain only falls at night. Cool. Or unending rain. Rain falls constantly around the dragon's lair, uh, heavily obscuring or lightly obscuring the area. And we, we get a full list of these water changes, changes to the creatures in the area, uh, planar connections, dragon magic, cosmetic alterations. Was there anything that called out to you here? No, I mean, these are all neat. I mean, I, I overall just thought these were all great concepts. And, and I think the way they're written, too, it's clear that, you know, think through these, see what appeals to you. Mm -hmm. add this which is which is exactly what i want out of something like this yep so we get that full treatment of uh of the terrain or the uh regional effects terrain effects all of that then we get into the layer actions and this is where i started to perk up a little bit and and pay extra attention because for me layer actions along with legendary actions are what we need as DMs to tell cool stories and make challenging encounters with not just dragons, but any sort of boss monsters. Yep. And so part of me wanted this section to be like the bulk of it. I wanted like, tell me all about layer actions. <laughs> Give me new layer actions. Yeah. Tell me how to use layer actions better. Uh, change the way they're used to make them even more, uh, power, not necessarily even powerful, but more potent as a tool for DMs to create challenges. Um, and it was okay. It definitely didn't meet those high expectations I had, but it was interesting to read. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting here is these layer actions actually felt like legendary actions to me rather than layer actions. Mm -hmm. They didn't super intersect the layer itself right or reflect right. it right it, it, it was interesting Strange. yeah so as a reminder layer actions as described in the monster manual are things that happen on initiative count 20 during combat with a dragon and you can't do one on consecutive rounds so for example i think like a silver dragon only has two layer actions so if you do one the first round the only thing you can do the second round is the other one. So the first thing I was hoping for was, okay, give me a lot more to, to work with. So I'm not yeah. stuck, but you know, make, like you said, make them, make them stuff that happens because of the layer, not because of the dragon. And while the ones that they put in here are interesting and useful in some ways, that, like you said, they, they aren't layer action so much as, dragons interacting with the layer in yeah. most cases so yeah yeah so like it, you know as an example if we were running a, a combat that's going to feature 
a white dragon. Um, a, an excellent lair action would be that icicles fall from the ceiling and can impale right. its foes, right? And that reflects the fact that this is a white dragon and its lair, which would have all these icicles hanging up above. Mm-hmm. And that's an excellent lair action, right? It reinforces that integration between location and monster and its supernatural quality. Um, maybe there are pools of acid and they'll, they can belch forth noxious fumes that kind of radiate around the pools where there are right now. That's a map element element. It's like terrain that's there, which we may either describe, or if we're playing with minis, we use, and then this, you know, area growing. That's a neat thing. That's a layer action. Um, you know, the first one here is catch breath. The dragon rolls a D six on a six that recharges its breath weapon. That doesn't have anything to do with the layer. Right. Um, yeah, it, it yeah, hmm. I, I'm, I'm glad it's there, but like you say, I, I can see if you really use a roundabout way, well, it's drawing power from its lair. So therefore, uh, it, it can have a better mm-hmm. chance of, re, of refreshing its breath weapon. But what, what, what got me was why just one out of six? <laughs> right i i i would rather have it say if they you if if it uses this act you know layer action it refreshes its breath weapon it recharges its breath weapon boom um because it ha- for me using a full layer action to have a seven sixteen point six percent chance of you know recharging its breath weapon feels like a waste of time that would be like a player Saying, well, you have a one in six chance of something good happening on your turn. Are you going to yeah. use that action? Not, not, no. not really. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, this could have a layer basis. Like if the dragon destroyed some element of its mm-hmm. layer right. and it empowered the dragon, right? And, and so that could be a thing that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, same thing with layer rejuvenation. The dragon regains hit points equal to the number of hit dice it has. Um, you know, that could be interesting in some way if it's truly visible that it's drawing strength from something otherwise this seems to me more like a legendary action than a layer action yeah i i agree so so let's talk about layer rejuvenation uh let's get game mechanical here the uh mm. the dragon regains hit points equal to the number of hit dice it has by drawing on the magical energy suffusing its layer all right so on a on initiative count 20 it heals some amount of damage what amount of damage does it heal? Well, let's look at a red dragon. A red dragon wormling has 10 hit dice. So a red dragon wormling, assuming you give it layer actions, which it wouldn't have normally, it gets back 10 hit points. Not not a lot, you know, right? At, mm-hmm. Especially if you're fighting like third or fourth level characters, that's one, that's one attack. Um, how about an adult red dragon? How many hit points does it get back? 25. Mm, yeah. uh, adult red dragon, you're talking tier three characters most likely 25 hit points really how about an ancient you know those tier <laughs> those tier four how many hit dice does it have 28 wow yeah. so so i love that idea as soon as i saw that i'm like okay cool it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a layer action it sounds more like a legendary action but oh i like this you know yeah. Give me give me something to keep the dragon in the fight longer and then i look at, at what that actually means in terms of hit points i'm like I'm not going to bother. That's not useful. I'm yeah. not going to bother with that. 
That's a shame. And I mean, it is hard. I've done some, a number of design things where I've looked at trying to do things across CRs or hit dice and, and it's hard. They're, they're difficult. It's mm-hmm. not like, you know, say 4E that just had a clear level progression and right. you could just take that level and, and feed off of it mechanically. Mm-hmm. This doesn't let you do that. It's just the way 5E is. But you need to come up with something better than, yeah. you know, don't use a bad right. <laughs> adjustment, right? Hit dice. Exactly. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work and you need to do something else, you know, just yeah. state certain CRs, you know, yeah. at CR blah and higher, this exactly. range to that range or something and give it real teeth. Because, yeah, yeah you're right. This is not... 28 hit points at, at high, you know, level of play right. is such a little amount that it's not, no. <laughs> yeah. And even, even, and you can't even do it once every other round, according to yeah. the rules. You have to, yeah, you have to do it every other round. Uh, to, can, to continue along this thread, lingering breath is the third uh, layer action. And it says any creature that took damage from the dragon's breath on the dragon's previous turn immediately takes 10 damage, 3d6, of the type as the dragon's breath weapon as it lingers and clings to its targets. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, I want to do a little more damage. And then I'm like, 10 damage? 10 damage, yeah. Uh, and only, this was... only if it took damage on the previous round from your breath weapon. <laughs> yeah. And th- this was something that existed in 3rd edition, and it yep. was brutal. When oh, a yeah. monster had clinging breath or whatever yeah. it was called, that yeah. was, I mean, you were just like, oh, well, I don't know how we're going to live through this. It was yeah. that hard. And and so it's, and this is part of the design issue is that you can't easily create, or let's say it, it's a challenge to create a lair action or legendary action that should be added to all monsters when right. monsters vary so greatly in difficulty yeah. and, and party levels vary so greatly in, in what they need to be challenged. So to just put a static number like this mm-hmm. is rough. Um, you know, better would be to say something like half of the damage that was inflicted right. previously. Exactly. Right? Yep. Something like that, because it, this just doesn't scale in any way. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, if it were a young dragon, it could be really rough. Right, exactly. Uh, the fourth one they give as a layer action is toughened scales. Glowing magical energy swirls across the dragon scales, granting the dragon resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage until initiative count 20 on the next round. And you know, at least this one, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's not non-magical weapons. It's it's all of that. So I'm, I'm cool with that because that will scale, you know, intuitively will scale uh, on how much damage you're doing. And my thought at the end of all this was, give me, for 6E, give me layer actions that start with Wormlings at Tier 1, yeah. Adult at Tier 2, uh, wait, Young Adult at Tier 2, Adult at Tier 3, Ancient at Tier 4, that scale up based on age categories, as, as we talked about. So Lingering Breath, sure, at four, you know, it's 1D4 at for wormlings it's 3d6 for young adult it's yeah you know 66 and up from there uh because then what i can do and, and base those layer actions on those tiers of of play that coordinate with the dragon because then i can pull it out and i could plug it in with the alchemist layer that the characters are running through i can make those give that alchemist uh, layer actions based on the traps that 
that the the alchemist has set up in in his or her shop and then we can uh have some fun with that and tell me what the cr difference is because i'm using that that's you know, what i want it, it it's a it, it's weird to me because it almost feels to me like D and D five E doesn't know what a challenge is. Yeah. Like that I, statement's more true than not true. Right. Like, yeah. And, and I could argue against it in various ways. You know, there's some things that are, that are great in five E in terms of that, but just, right. it, it just, and, and even if you look at how adventures are written, it's as if they don't know what's hard for a low level party versus what's hard for a high level party. Mm-hmm. And it's different than in other editions where it was just like, well, they didn't play test high level that well. This is more like just the basic construction of the game. Yeah. And we continue to see it like this doesn't seem to know. Like Lingering Breath's design doesn't seem to know what it takes to challenge characters. I find that fascinating. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I've always said uh, about many editions of D&D and 5e in particular, you can't make a low level adventure too easy. And you can't make a high level, really high level adventure too hard. Yeah. At least in, in my experiences, because the easiest adventure that I've written ends up killing pl- characters. And I'm like, there's no way any character should, should even come close to dying in this adventure. And somehow they, they find a way. Right. Just because right. of the way the rules are. And I've written high level adventures thinking, no, there's no way anyone could survive this. And it's done in a round. And I, I've talked to other the, you know, adventure designers, and it's the same thing. Uh, it's just the the character power at those high levels is unfathomable at times. So, yeah, really interesting. Um, I like your idea for six E, and I, I do hope that uh, even within five E or whatever the five point five is, that they will do something to sort of address this a little better, just in future design. That it, that it's just an eye towards scaling and differences across different party levels just recognizing that yep uh so anything else about layers layer actions anything you wanted to mention before we move on nope. okay then let's move on to dragon hordes so this this is where things start to get a little interesting for me uh so what they say is that hoarding treasure is really part of the nature of dragons and it's not that they're greedy at least in how we understand the term, uh, although some could be. They just, uh, since this is inherent to their magical nature, they need this to reach their full potential. Yeah. And when I read this, you know, Sean, I immediately thought, that's what a banker in a top hat would say. Yeah. I'm not greedy. I have to do this. It's important. It's uh, my nature. It's Right. It's... It's you know it's this sort of capitalistic right. idea that we are all better people because we have more money. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I I, I guess, and I know why they're trying to say that dragons aren't greedy, but right. it is literally in the lore that they're greedy, right. and it's in all the sources that gave us dragons. Right? I mean, smog is greedy. Yeah, that, that is part of it, and in fact feeds off the avarice of humans and dwarves and so on that are their downfall as well. Right. And, and, and I know that they're trying to go for this multiverse, whatever, but I mean, mm, yeah. come on, <laughs> dragons yeah. are greedy. Right. And, and even if the greed is not monetary, but power related, 
it's still greed of a sort, right? Yeah. To to be the most you can be uh, in terms of power and being able to wield that power is is greed right. of a certain uh, definition. So You're certainly not giving it out to other dragons that need it. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, so we get this idea then right from the start that the wealth that's collected by a dragon in their horde is a reflector is an amplifier of their power. And that's why they do it. Uh, the problem with that then for me, at least I may be jumping ahead too much is that if you then are a DM who wants to put a dragon as a foe into your game and have that dragon be the large challenge that it should be. You also have to be ready to give your characters a lot of that wealth, which I, what if I want to run a low wealth, low magic game? Um, How do I reconcile that with what they're saying here? Well, I can just say, this is my world and I'm doing what I want, but then you get the players who are like, well, in the book it says, so yeah, it's just, it, it's, I can see why they're doing it, but for me, that becomes a game balance well, thing in the long I, I don't, I, I don't see why they're doing it. I, I think that this is an interesting design choice. And just to be clear to, to anyone who's listening and hasn't looked at this, what they, what they do is they say, as you age, you begin to diversify your portfolio. I mean, you uh, establish <laughs> multiple layers where you stash loot. And they actually go in and give numbers for what that amount should be, which tends to be multiples of 15,000 gold pieces. Yep. And this specific number of gold has to be maintained. And later on, we're actually told that as a, this is a quote, as a rule of thumb, if a dragon's lair no longer holds at least 10,000 gold pieces worth of treasure, the site is no longer considered a lair. The dragon can't use its lair actions there, and the regional effects surrounding the lair end or fade as if the dragon had died. What? Yeah. Yep. And I think that's a fine idea. And, and I, I feel this way about fizz bands, almost from, you know, cover to start cover to end cover. If... If you told me, let's create a world, let's create a campaign where there's this multidimensional dragon and there's this horde or that we're going to bust in and heist from this dragon because that will weaken it because that's how it draws its power. Those are super cool ideas for a campaign. Mm -hmm. But to say that the lore of all dragons is multiples of 15,000 gold pieces with a do not go under your balance of 10,000 or you'll get paid by a you know like hit by a charge fee like a, wait a minute yeah <laughs> yeah and and so what as i'm reading this what i'm going is i don't want to give out that much money so how much is like the prince of a realm that the dragon has captured and is holding hostage is worth i would say is worth at least ten thousand. so as long as that captive prince is there it still counts as a layer Right. I'm doing all this mental mathematics yeah. trying to yeah. justify what is 10,000 gold pieces. I mean, worth. the value of the land. Exactly. <laughs> There's a mine below the dragon's mm-hmm. lair. So, therefore, the dragon owns it. And therefore, it's always going to be a, a viable layer. And, like you said, you know, to run a cool heist game where there's no way we could beat this dragon as is, right. we're going to go to each of its layers and take 
its wealth to depower it and then fight it. I'm all about that. That's a cool story, but as the basis for your entire universe. And here's a, when I was reading this, I thought like here would be a really neat campaign. Um, You're in a city and you're hired by someone to take, to, to basically rob these various locations. Mm -hmm. Over time, you learn those are the stashes of a gold dragon and you're hired by an evil dragon. Right. So now you've got to do the counter heist yeah. to repower the good dragon and unpower the, the evil dragon, right? That could be really cool. Yeah, I love and that. I love it. Yeah. But to tell me that's the underpinning of all dragons. Mm. Yeah. Because if it were, things would be different, right? And that's one of the problems that dragons have always had is that why are you just sitting in a cavern on a big pile of treasure? Yeah. That's just obvious, right? And and even if you say, well, I have multiple layers. Well, now you got to defend multiple layers. Right. Like all of this is sort of, it just does sort of doesn't make sense. And when we when we lean into it even harder, say you must have ten thousand gold pieces in every layer. Well, I mean, dragons could just bury an expensive gem under the ground where you're not going to find it, or what? You know, like I, I, this yeah. is weird. It's just, <laughs> I'm not a fan of the the again neat ideas. I don't love it as core lore. Yeah. Yep. I, I think we can agree there. So, and so tell me about this. Why 15,000? Why, why do they keep using <laughs> yeah. that number? So I asked uh, listener Andy Perlman about this. Uh, he has studied the DMG table super carefully. He's got a really cool thread that we've linked to here in, on Ian World about uh, how treasure works. So an, an 11 to 16 treasure hoard averages 30K gold pieces. 7 to 20 average is 300k so it all feeds feeds off of multiples of 15,000 okay. uh, or at least multiples of 15,000 works and and when he's and, and also DM David has looked at this the math in the DMG is very deliberate about how it works and so this seems to again bring a real exact level of, of math to it that somehow isn't present anywhere else <laughs> in the game but sure is here yeah. so before we talked about the infinity stones um, so there is a way that a dragon can link their hordes. Um, they may have a multi-part item spread out across its hordes to, as a way of strengthening the horde. Uh, so you might have a set of uh, identical gems, the Infinity Stones, one in each horde that connects them all. Uh, the Rod of Seven Parts was an example that they used. You know, one of each of the parts of, of the Rod of Seven Parts in a horde to connect that horde. I'm, I'm glad here they said a dragon often does this, not always, right? right. Um, which I appreciated. Um, and it's a neat idea. That, like I like the idea of the, there's a series of portraits of a well-known historical family, right? So if you were to like say like, uh, yeah, in the horde is this, uh, uh, you know, open lord of Waterdeep. And, and it could lead people to go, well, how many open lords are there? Right. Because yeah. that there must be that many layers, right? Let's go and, and, and find them all. And that could be really fun in a campaign. It's, it's yeah. a great concept. Yep. Uh, next, we get a section about plundering a horde. And that's where it talks about the rule of thumb where a dragon's horde must have at least 10,000 gold pieces worth of treasure in order to be considered a horde. Uh, it just makes me feel like the dragon is, is me in college, you know, doing overdraft bank charges and right. cursing. And just... <laughs> Checking your ATM uh, balance yeah. several times a week. 
honey, I can't go out on this date. That would take me under 10,000 gold pieces, and right. I would lose all my regional effects and lair actions. So exactly. could we go out next week? Yeah, I'm, I'm expecting uh, my minions to bring in some gems <laughs> yeah. uh, this, this week, and then we can possibly swing it. Uh, Too real. Then they give horde quirks. Uh, so these are items in the horde that can have effects that it soaks up from the dragon and the dragon's lair. Um, so there are regional effects that a an item could convey to the environment around it, such as altering water, altering weather, attracting animals, uh, dreaming of dragons, a shift in personalities, uh, items sentient items that are seeking a return to the horde if they are stolen and so on any thoughts on that they're fun ideas like this verdant influence if coins from the horde are placed in soil they encourage lush plant growth like that right there could be the hook for why you've got to take down this dragon because if you can take the coins that it's stolen and bring them back and plant them you know the famine will end right like there's some really neat ideas there that are yeah, good potential. And then they give uh, some ideas about haunted hordes. Restless spirits might haunt the objects that held special significance in their lives. And the death of the dragon who stole these items will be an opportunity to put spirits at rest. Uh, so, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, a very specific regional effect, if you will, <laughs> of uh, yeah. of what these items collect. I think what what I like about this, and I, and I wish they'd said a little more about this, is what, what this allows you to do, the idea of a haunting, is to give you a greater history about what the dragon has done in the mm-hmm. past. Right. And that's where I would want to use this, is to say, you know, this ghost that comes out uh, of whatever item, you know, here's, you know, give it that reason why it's doing it. And they do have this unfinished business um but that's where I would play off of that unfinished business table to say, like, well, you know, okay, like maybe the item must be destroyed, but here's why. Yeah. And that ties into the greater campaign or into your backstory or the backstory of one of the characters in this way. That would be really cool play, right? Yeah. And, and that's the thing about this sort of I, – I feel like what they said to themselves as designers was a really cool adventure is sneaking into a dragon's horde and stealing things. So now we need to come up for a reason why players would do that. So we're going to give them this tie the power to it. Whereas you could have just as easily said, in this dragon sword is a sword that has the last, uh, the soul of the last paladin that tried to fight the dragon. He has secrets. So we need to get the sword to talk to the soul to see what this paladin uh, knows. Yeah, and you you don't need this big backstory to go along with that. <laughs> yep. Uh, so we had uh, we also have cursed hordes. The dragon, if you steal its thing, curses you, and we get a table of curse effects, uh, which includes each effect the creature gaining a level of exhaustion that can't be mm. removed until the curse is broken. So yeah, that's some pretty serious stuff. I guess if you're going to if you're going to steal from the dragon, the dragon will put uh, some things in place to uh, bother you for doing so. Let's have disadvantage in all ability checks until you can end this curse. Mm-hmm. Eh, yep, I don't know. And they draw a uh, they draw a note from Van Richten's where you can't just get rid of this by casting a third level spell, remove curse. 
uh, you can maybe suppress the curse for an hour or so, but it doesn't remove it. Uh, you'll need like a greater restoration to uh, do or or just suppress it for a day. Um, mm-hmm. To get yeah. rid of the curse, you will need to do a very specific thing. Right. And uh, I'm a big fan of that as well. Yeah, and, and I, I think what, what they didn't say for either of these, the haunting or the dragon's curse, is these are fun ideas to create an interesting story that extends beyond the dragon being slain. Yep. And that's what these should be tools for rather than just, you know, you've got a level of exhaustion, break the curse. Uh, yeah, that's fine. But, but the, the important thing, I, the interesting thing is the why of it, right? Why does this exist? How do we end it? And what, why is that a thing? Why is there that backstory to it? And where, how does that lead into our next adventure? And that's where I think things can get really interesting is if you use those for that, to, to extend the story and lead to the next place, that's great. Yeah, and I think they may have mentioned this in a previous chapter, but they don't mention it again here, and I wish they had, was another cool story that would tie into this thing would be a, a dragon has five hordes around five different layers. You kill the dragon in layer number one, it reappears in layer number mm-hmm. two. Now you've got it. That's another good reason right. to clear a horde out of a layer while the dragon's not there. Sort of the lich's soul vessel thing. Uh, yeah. Only played out through dragons. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the last thing we get here in this particular section is competition for a horde. And that only makes sense. If you are going after a dragon's horde for whatever reason, there are probably other folks who are going <laughs> after it for the same or for their own reasons. And so it shouldn't be easy, even if you know the dragon's not in that lair, to just walk in and take something. Yeah, and, and, and it's just a tiny piece here. It's a table of six motivations for other organizations to have, and then just a tiny bit of text there. Um, but, but you can do a lot with this idea of a competition to make either a battle interesting at the, uh, dragon's lair or how to get to the lair. If you're trying to get there faster, there's a lot you can do. And they don't, they don't touch on all those possibilities that exist there. Mm -hmm. Um, that could be very interesting. You know, any number of scenarios, uh, there's the whole, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You, you finally make it out of the horde. And you're surrounded by your enemy who takes the prize, right? Yeah. Like that's, yep. Nothing is going to infuriate players more than that. <laughs> and the the last section of this chapter is what's in a horde. So Teos, what is in a horde? <laughs> well, this is a really interesting thing. So they start by sort of reminding us that hey, we've come up with two different systems for giving things out. One is the DMG which is basically based on CR, you roll on tables. And the other is in Xanathar's Guide to Everything. I've been looking into all of this recently for a product I'm working on, so I'm very familiar with all this. Uh, Xanathar's tells you, hey, why don't you give out certain items based on rarities? And so they, they say, hey, yeah, there they're, they're are these two systems, um, and we're going to give you something that can work with, with them. Um, and then they give us additional details on the type of treasure that we're giving out so you you know if you give out coins well okay but what if they're from an ancient culture or they're from a another world and so there's a table of these kinds of things to make coins more interesting Mm 
Um, we then also have separate tables later and a little bit of summer, summary up front around things like mundane items, gems, and art objects on how to make them more interesting um, for our hordes. And then magic items, it, it, it again describes that here's how the systems work um, and, and gives you a little bit of a reminder, though, that I would say I'm not confident that someone reading this would get exactly how these work because they're a little bit complex. Mm -hmm. um, they're more complex than what these two paragraphs try to clear up. Right. And then it presents <laughs> a new system. <laughs> so we get creating a horde and here we get uh, what I think is a pretty good approach. It's sort of like we, what you had talked about with that AD&D, you know, where the monster had specific treasure tables. That's basically what this is doing by Age of Dragons. So it says if you're a wormling, uh, that horde is uh, an average amount or you can roll of various things. Uh, so on average, 4,200 copper pieces, which interestingly enough, all age categories have 4,200 copper pieces. I'm like, oh, yeah. Is that a misprint or are they just, is it yeah. like they leave the loose change? Right. You, they... you just, when you're a wormling, all you can get is copper. So <laughs> you have this copper. When you grow to a young dragon, you're not going to get any more copper because now you've moved down to silver. So all that <laughs> copper is still there. Uh, I don't know about that. But yeah, <laughs> I'm that's, trying that, here. That's funny. I'm yeah, trying. no, I appreciate it. So yeah, the, the copper will be the same average, same rolls at all levels. So Wormling, 4,200 copper, then 2,100 silver pieces, 140 gold, three mundane items, nine gems, two art objects, and four magic items. An ancient dragon on the other end of the spectrum just takes all those numbers way up. Instead of 140 gold, it's 210,000 gold, 42,000 platinum, nine mundane items, 21 gems, 11 art objects, seven magic items. This is exactly what we said earlier, where like we're being told dragons are just stuffed full of treasure. Your characters are just going to be looting it up. Um, <laughs> and then we get various tables that um, reflect the information we are given earlier, like ideas for mundane items. And these are great. You know, there, there are a number of sort of fun ideas on what it can be. Uh, a nice thing about the, the other tables like gems and art objects is these are broken down by age categories. So the role produces a slightly different value distribution. Mm -hmm. So an ancient dragon has a chance at getting a 5,000 gold piece gem. A wormling can only go up to 100. Mm -hmm. So that, that keeps things a little more reasonable. Um, that's good. And then the Horde Magic Items table does the same thing across age categories. So if you're a Wormling, your chance of getting a rare major item is there, but it's a 3% chance or 4% mm -hmm. chance. Um, and if you are an Ancient Dragon, you know, you could have a legendary major item and all of that. And, and it lists the particular tables in the DMG. And by stating what it is, legendary major item, you can also use that if you're using the Xanathar systems to sort of tick it off your campaign checklist of what you're giving out yep. um, treasure-wise. I, I like this. Mm -hmm. I think this is overall a really cool idea. Um, it, it juices up what dragons reward you mm -hmm. uh, for taking them out. And, but as, you, as Sean said, you just want to be careful that that's okay with your campaign because yeah. it can be a lot. Um, and because I'm working so much on magic items these days, you know, one of the things I would caution is that the intention of the game, that the, the way these magic item tables work is that the ones that come up most often are sort of fun things and complimentary things. Mm -hmm. The ones that come up less often 
are really useful things, things right. with pluses. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the legendary things are your Vorpals and your so-ons that are going to be game-changing. So you want to be careful when you're rolling on these tables or choosing whatever you're doing that you're not getting the, the quantity is almost not as important as, as the quality, right? And if just don't break your game as a result of this, it, it, there can be that temptation that a thing like a dragon, everybody gets an awesome item. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the rules and this is also work that Andy Perlman and, and, and DM David have done on average, every four levels, a PC is supposed to get a cool item, mm -hmm. which means that by 20th level, you have five really cool, useful items. Right. Not more than that. Yeah. So giving every single party member in a dragon horde a super cool item kind of means they shouldn't get anything else cool for another four levels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? yeah. And that's an important thing to think about with all with this system yep. that isn't made obvious here. Yeah. So we have now successfully, I think, covered this chapter on layers and hordes. And next chapter we will draw, dive into the Draconomicon section to see what we learn about all of these marvelous dragons. And a lot of pages in this, in this upcoming one. Yes, there are. We will, we will get right to work on that. Uh, thank you, Teos, for sharing your insights as always. And thank you. you too, Sean. And thank you to our listeners uh, for putting up with our nonsense. Uh, thank you also to our patrons who keep the lights on for us here at Mastering Dungeons. If you would like to become a patron of the show in this new year of 2022, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, where can people find your brilliant insights? My what? <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> okay, just your insights. Oh, okay. All yeah, right. those you can find at alphastream.org or on Twitter at alphastream. How about you, Sean? Uh, my less than brilliant insights mm -hmm. can be found on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Uh, or you can follow the podcast Twitter handle itself at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, now that we know everything there is to know about dragon layers and dragon hordes, what are we going to do now? I'm going to roll on table F so many times that I'm going to regret it for years yes. to come. Yes. We will be able to kill all the dragons once we get all that treasure. 